Hello and welcome to Committee Corridor, where we are above all the noise and disruption of the House of Commons chamber and we get to focus on the things that select committees do best, which is putting questions to people who know what they're talking about. Now, I'm Tom Tugendhat. I chair the Foreign Affairs Committee and you're listening to the second episode of our new podcast series offering insight into the role of various select committees here in Westminster. Now, we're going to be talking to people across the political spectrum, discussing the ideas, politics, social change and economics that are facing the UK today. Today, we're talking about Afghanistan, a country where I worked for four years, and we'll be discussing how the government engages with the country now and going forward. British and American forces withdrew from Afghanistan in the summer of 2021, ending an operation that saw thousands of us serving in that country. The question now is how has the security situation changed? How should we respond to the Taliban's takeover of the country and the resulting humanitarian crisis? And what does it mean for the security of us here in the UK? The UK's role in the withdrawal and the role of the government more widely has been a subject for several committees in the House of Commons. In a moment, we'll hear from the chair of the International Development Committee, Sarah Champion, who has also been working on the humanitarian situation and that aspect of the withdrawal. She'll be speaking alongside my colleague from the Foreign Affairs Committee, Royston Smith, a Conservative Party member and the MP for Southampton. But first, Michael Semple, who served as the deputy to the European Union Special Representative for Afghanistan and has an extraordinary depth of knowledge of the country. And he's now a professor at Queen's University in Belfast. Michael, while we've been watching events unfold in Ukraine, what's been happening in Afghanistan since uh, we last saw you in October? The Taliban have been showing their true colours over the past few months. Uh, they have pursued their attempt to set up a government of 1%. In other words, they're appointing their people only, essentially loyal armed clerics to all positions throughout the state and refusing to to move to accommodate any other political interests in the country. They've been uh, taking increasingly ideological positions consistent with their, you know, their original sort of like 1990s um, ideology, empowering the religious police, clamping down on, uh, on women's rights. They've been trying to build up their armed forces to give them a chance of staying in power, no matter how many people they, um, uh, they alienate. So they're particularly worried about um, armed resistance from the some of the you know, the other other political forces in the country, uh, they've been spectacularly failing to come up with any sensible approach to the um, to the economic situation. They've been antagonising all and sundry on the international scene, um, starting from their uh, from their neighbours. They've now got border clashes with three of the neighbouring countries. Um, and through their inflexible position, they've been basically alienating even those members of the international community um, who really wanted to engage with them. They've stayed in power, but they've left lots of people questioning how long they can do so. One of the things that really struck many of us when they took over was how slick they looked in the first few hours and how quickly uh, we all wondered they would fall apart. I think for many of us, they've managed a little better than we thought, but frankly, not much. And the latest news about their 
re uh, reestablishment of the burqa or the veil in various different ways is frankly just another lesson on how this is an organization that has undermined the individual rights of people in Afghanistan for quite literally decades. Do you see any change coming? Do you see any reformist element, any leaders, any younger leaders in the movement who could make a difference to the economy, to human rights, to anything like that? Or is, is this simply a spiral downwards? There are lots of such people inside the movement and they're completely disempowered and they've got weaker over the, the past eight months rather than stronger. So uh, yes, there is prospect of change, but the prospect of change is going to be um, as other parts of Afghan society get themselves organized and start to take back their country. And although the Taliban have been very good at maintaining their own internal coalition so far, despite them alienating both the Afghan population and the international community, um, so there, there will be increased pressure on that Taliban coalition um, as the, the rest of the country overcomes the, so the shock um, of the, the, the Taliban August takeover. So yes, there. Um, I do think that things are going to change. I mean, the vast majority of the, the Afghan population rejects pretty much everything that the Taliban have been doing. Um, but the change is probably not going to come from within the Taliban. It's going to be from outside. And then we'll see whether some parts of the Taliban are prepared to get on board with that or not. I mean, that sounds like you're talking about revolution rather than evolution. Um, and I'm just wondering how much will the uh, illegal economy play into that because of course you know the drugs haven't gone away the smuggling hasn't gone away and the reality is that afghanistan is still sitting on one of the uh, largest resources of rare earths and, and copper deposits and things like that that others are trying to get their hands on so it's leading to a whole spate of illegal mining and and, and various forms of resource extraction both over and underground, if you like. Uh, yes, Afghanistan definitely is a, uh, a country that counts, and there's a, you know there's a, there's a list of reasons. The um, the, the natural resources, including uh, rare earths and things like copper, you know, they're one of the factors which make Afghanistan count. I think that a lot of people, perhaps even some in the U.S. administration before the Taliban took over, hoped that they could be an unpopular but an efficient administration. And therefore, they might be the kind of people that um, the other actors, including even the US, could uh, could deal with. That they could keep the state together on, on this 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 you know this question between evolution and uh, and revolution. Uh, we've had eight months to see if the Taliban could get themselves uh, on this trajectory where they could be you know ruthless, ruthless but efficient administrators. Absolutely not. I mean, you're not you know it's not a formula for administering the state. Um, that you antagonize all the countries of the region and the whole of your population and make no friends. When it comes to the illegal economy, funnily enough, the Taliban leader uh, came up with a, uh, a decree uh, banning the production and sale of narcotics. Everybody knows that they are largely dependent upon the, um, the illegal economy for their own revenues and for the enrichment of their own commanders. And I think from the clarifications we got after they issued the decree, it was pretty clear that they'd got um, no intention of implementing it. But they, you know, they pandered to some parts of their constituency by saying, "See, you know, we are Islamic law even applies to narcotics, except that it doesn't, and that the the harvest went ahead uninterrupted, um, and nobody really believes that they're sufficiently serious about it." Um, to try and clamp down on the next harvest, so the illegal economy thrives, and um, despite having a, you know, a supposedly tough Islamist regime in charge. Do we not see a very divided country that the Taliban are going to increasingly fail to unite? Do we see a state breakdown coming? Before we get onto the, the state breakdown, I think we should look at the issue of levels of violence. 
part of the, the contract which the Taliban might have offered was that you won't have representative government, you don't get to choose your leaders, but at least we'll bring security, uh, we'll ensure that violence levels come down. I mean, the idea of that contract had takers in the international community. I think many of the many people in the US thought, yeah, we can live with that. Uh, we want an end to the war. Uh, and, and some people in Afghanistan thought, well, at least they can guarantee us security. Okay, we'll say, you know, we'll do nothing against the Taliban. Trouble is that they haven't managed to deliver on that. Violence uh, is already on an upwards trend uh, from multiple sources. Inside the Taliban movement, they're shooting each other. Parties squabbling over control of those uh, revenue flows, squabbling over power inside the Islamic Emirate. The, the, the hardline Islamist opposition to the Taliban, the uh, Islamic State, the local, local version, um, they've got a pretty deadly campaign is underway. And increasingly, the national resistance to the Taliban, essentially the, um, the, the more nationalist forces are pushing back against them. Violence is on the up. And for those who said, oh, we don't want to see another war in Afghanistan, it's a little bit like the, the Ukraine case. Afghans could turn around and say, there already is a war. It never went away and it's getting worse. I mean, in terms of complete state breakdown, it would be a mistake to jump to predict that the, the Afghan state is going to completely collapse. The Taliban have failed to deliver a state which they can hold on to and which can effectively manage the, the country that can build on Afghanistan's advantages and opportunities uh, and deal with the threats. They have failed to bring a credible equilibrium. More changes can be expected ahead. So given all these failures, there's a sort of second element of, of, of danger, isn't there, other than the violence that you're talking about? The second element of, of danger is the violence that triggered our intervention in Afghanistan in 2001, which is the uh, proliferation of terrorist groups. This time, of course, some of them connected to Western China and to the Xinjiang region, some of them connected to uh, attacks in other parts of the world, including organizations like ISIS, which are now uh, so prevalent, sadly, in, in Afghanistan. Do we see those spreading? Do you see greater indications of violence against civilians and, and indeed violence against others perhaps building up as well? In short, yes. That, however, this is a threat which is perhaps more difficult to assess than some of the, so the political and social failures of the Taliban. Ironically, the easiest part of the foreign militant threat to monitor uh, is the foreign terrorist threat directed against Pakistan. Before the Taliban achieved their spectacular victory in August, the leader of the Pakistan Taliban in hiding in Afghanistan gave uh, an interview in which he said, we, the Pakistani Taliban, will benefit from the eventual Afghan Taliban victory in ways that other people are not in a position to foresee. That's what he said. Um, very wise words. If you look at the pattern of uh, terrorist violence in neighboring Pakistan, alas, uh, after several years uh, of sharp decline, it's now pushing sharply upwards with attacks which have been delivered from, uh, from Afghanistan uh, into Pakistan. Taliban Afghanistan is proving to be a safe haven 
My understanding of the Al-Qaeda position is that they're delighted at Taliban control of Afghanistan. Uh, it guarantees they, their continued you know, personal survival and ability to reorganize the Al-Qaeda network. It may be that they, you know, they do things differently this time, that they sort of uh, don't use Afghanistan as sort of like an operational headquarters. Nobody uh, has proven that there's another 9-11 being, uh, being planned, and nobody has proven that any of these militant organizations is in a position to overrun the, the states that they challenge. Um, they are all active. They're all there. Uh, and Taliban promises to deal with them have so far come to, to naught. And just, I mean, finally, I'm saying on this, Tom, that the, I mean, some, some people hoped when they thought that the Taliban was a reformed organization, they might potentially be a, you know, uh, a counterterrorism partner. I mean, I think they, the, you know, they, the wackier the Taliban internal policies become, the more implausible and impossible it is for anybody to consider them a counterterrorism partner. You basically can't work with them. And so what's the best thing that we can do about it? Because here in the UK, we've had a lot of support for Afghan refugees who've needed our help. But what can we actually do about Afghanistan today? Is there anything we can do? I think that the first thing is a change in mindset. I think that in, in August and September of last year, Many external observers and some Afghans sort of thought this is the end of story. This is it. It's you know uh, that this regime is going to be around for a long time, uh, and the only, your only option is to find some way of accommodating with them. I think over the past few months, many people have reevaluated that, and the first thing that I think that UK can do is get on board with accepting, with realizing that the Taliban in exclusive control of Afghanistan at the head of an Islamic emirate is a temporary state of affairs, that they are going to be replaced by something else. Things can get worse or things can get better. First of all, accept they're not going to stay the same. Then once UK accepts that the Taliban you know, who force their way into power against all international undertakings, that they're only here for a while, UK can be using all of its influence to ensure that that which comes after the Taliban should be better, both for the Afghan people and for the international community. Essentially, going back to an old formula, which is that a, a broad-based representative Afghan political system and a government sitting at the top of it, prepared to act as a responsible actor uh, within the region and internationally, that is the solution which offers stability inside Afghanistan and more broadly internationally. And Michael, who can we work with to achieve that? What areas of leverage do we have? Because our, our cooperation with other governments in the regions has not always been easy. Uh, and some of them have been actively hostile uh, to the coalition efforts in the past. Are they are there still governments that we could work with in the future? Yes, well, I mean, things, things are moving on, I think, as the yeah, countries in the region have also been reappraising uh, the position of the Taliban. Previously, a lot of them who were hostile towards the coalition, it was because they primarily didn't want to see US troops on Afghan soil inside their region, potentially, they thought, providing a threat to them. Now that you know, that's gone, um, they're worrying about themselves. And after about six months grace period, when they were prepared to give the Taliban the benefit of the doubt, Increasingly, they are concluding that their security is being undermined by the continued presence of, of the Taliban. Because it's not just about the shooting war. I mean, remember, it's also about migrants. The way the Taliban are running Afghanistan, millions of Afghans are simply waiting for the earliest possible opportunity to flee the country in any direction they can, 
whether that be out through Iran, out through uh, Pakistan, out through Central Asia. I mean, that in itself is a threat to the stability in, inside the region. So firstly, I think we can say that inside the region, uh, it's time to update uh, who's prepared to cooperate. Some countries like Tajikistan, are, I think, have been uh, you know, more quick on this, you know, being prepared to uh, to tolerate you know, the non-Taliban forces. But I think that uh, Pakistan, Iran, and Uzbekistan um, are all reevaluating quickly. Even China, I think, is probably going to get there as they as they find that the Taliban are not reigning in the Uyghurs and are not offering a stable government and are not offering the kind of framework in which you know Chinese investment can uh, can go forward. And we're going to find that the Chinese are Chinese are also going to decide that the Taliban are not a good bet in terms of who we can work with amongst Afghans. Um, they there are plenty of people that the UK can work with. It's not like a Ukraine situation where you don't have one charismatic national leader that you, you know, that you get behind because his people have uh, got got behind him. They there were many problems in Afghan politics in the run up to the collapse of the republic uh, and to some extent I mean the US, UK and allies uh, did help create those problems so they this difficult and rather unpopular non dysfunctional republic that collapsed. But also the way that US, UK, and allies uh, helped essentially, you know, pick up the whole Afghan political class and scatter them around the region and the world. Uh, re- made it really difficult to organise Afghan politics. So that one of the things that the the UK can do is help Afghans convene. This is the, like the next round of politicking. I say the next round of reconciliation. I mean, get behind a peace process. Help convene Afghan peacemakers is the first stage. We're not talking about fomenting a war. We're helping about Afghans you know, attain the sustainable peace, which they definitely aspire to. One last question, if I may, before we close, is you've seen UK aid. We've both seen UK aid, um, sometimes not entirely helpfully deployed in Afghanistan, sometimes undermining efforts. What do you think that UK aid can do today? Is there anything that we can do uh, because certainly at the time when the uh, Taliban took over the administration, I think you and I were both uh, pretty clear about the fact that we had to be cautious about legitimizing the regime because there were many people in Afghanistan who would not look kindly on us giving support to a regime that was so murderous. How do you view aid and legitimization today? Do you see any ways in which we can cooperate with this administration, any ways at all that are even vaguely constructive? What do you think we can do in the immediate sense? Yes, it is possible to assist in Afghanistan at the moment, but very difficult. Uh, and it is necessary both for humanitarian and for pragmatic reasons, um, not least to reduce the, the surge of migration out of Afghanistan. The, the concern that you rightly raised at the start of this phase, that do everything in such a way that it avoids legitimizing the uh, the Taliban regime that concern still applies and will continue to apply. So the question is: Is there a uh, an independent organisation involved, an ind- independent body involved in the delivery of the monitoring of assistance? Um, uh, you know, that's that's the key criterion. And I think that whether one's talking about education, whether one's talking about food, that can be applied. But also, I mean, putting some of the assistance into supporting a reconciliation process over which the Taliban do not have a veto um, is also a really high priority. Um, There are other ideas out there trying to keep some of the national institutions 
going, but not actually directly under Taliban control. I mean, that the clever programmers can find ways of doing this if there are tasks for it. I mean, I, I mean, one of the questions I've asked right from start is, you know, why do we have to let the, the Independent Human Rights Commission sink just because the, um, the, the, you know, the Taliban are in control in, in Kabul if it's independent? Um, that you can, you know, you can find a way of, of keeping it going. So look for ways um, of maintaining at least some of the essential national capacity on the basis that the Taliban are not going to be in control of Afghanistan forever, perhaps not for very long. Um, you know, make the, the, the transition run as smoothly as possible. Over the past few months, there has been a major humanitarian program delivered largely by the United Nations with a high degree of cooperation with Taliban officials. I have sort of like documented two, two trends there. One is that it has been important in helping Afghans survive incredibly tough economic uh, situation, the, you know, the collapse of earth of employment uh, and the uh, intensification of the, of the drought. So it is you know, making lives better, uh, helping people survive. But we have also seen absolutely consistent Taliban attempts to co-opt that assistance and direct it to you know, people that they deem worthy, essentially their supporters. Well, look, thank you very much, as always, Michael. It's great to see you. Well, in this part of the podcast, you're used to us now, I hope, talking to members of the committee. And the whole point about this is that we're not just our committee, but we work across committees. So I'm very, very pleased to be able to introduce Sarah Champion, who chairs the International Development Committee. Sarah is a Labour MP and was elected to chair that committee a few years ago. She has also been doing a lot of work on Afghanistan with her committee, and so I look forward to hearing her views. And with me from the Foreign Affairs Committee is Royston Smith. Royston is a Conservative MP and has been on the committee roughly the same time as I have. Thank you very much indeed, both of you, for joining us. Sarah, perhaps I can kick off with you and ask, how do you see what's going on in Afghanistan? We've just heard from Michael Semple about the challenges facing the Taliban administration, its failures of governance, and indeed uh, its inability to deliver the peace that some people hoped that it might, even to its regional neighbours. What's the impact that you're seeing? Um, well, pretty catastrophic, to be honest. Um, partly... We need to look at the impact of climate change. Um, it's a country that has been having incredibly severe flooding, um, severe winters, uh, crop failure, um, and uh, all of that is uh, compounded by the extremely uncertain, unstable government that it has at the moment. Uh, there's a massive humanitarian crisis going on there, but there's also a massive crisis when it comes to human rights. I mean, if we just take the example of women and girls, we've seen uh, women now told that they have to be fully covered with face covering, which, of course, is fine if that is their choice. Uh, but it is something which is being imposed upon them. We've seen girls being told that they can no longer go to secondary schools and only in very limited situations can they go to universities. So everything that um, for the last 20, 30 years, uh, this generation have been told is their right um, to expect uh, has now been rapidly taken away from them. And the other problem that there is fundamentally is the um, very, very difficult um, access for either humanitarian or development aid and support to get into that country. So to be honest, my fear at the moment is it is 
as bad as it has ever been, but the world is slightly turning its back on it because understandably our attention is focused on Ukraine. We became very concerned that the same failings that we saw in terms of evacuation and immigration routes in Afghanistan were being replicated with Ukraine. Um, Sadly, we're seeing the same situation in terms of uh, humanitarian aid getting to the ground in um, Ukraine. Uh, Only about a third of what's been pledged has actually landed. Uh, The same is happening still in Afghanistan. And I think uh, the lesson that we have tried to get the government to make is that unless there is a comprehensive strategy in place for managing such uh, seemingly unprecedented, but now two within a year incidents, um, we're we're always going to be caught on the hoof. And rather than just trying to cobble together a scheme uh, as we go along, there ought to be contingency plans for just such disasters happening. And, And we still haven't got a development strategy in place. The integrated review is looking very outdated at the moment. Um, and I think that's why I really enjoy working in such a collaborative way with your committee in that we we keep on finding the same failings and raising them to government, but unfortunately not getting the shift that we want to see. Yes, it's interesting the way we've, I mean, this isn't the only report on which we've done that, but where we've tag teamed each other and made sure that we come to these coordinated, if not the same conclusions and try and get the changes we need. Perhaps I can more focus on the report that you've actually already put out, Sarah. What are you fundamentally recommending to the government? And how do you think that the British government can actually make a difference in Afghanistan in a way that helps not just the Afghan people, but actually our position? I think our our fundamental finding was that the UK government has a moral duty, um, if not a legal duty, though that could be argued, towards the NGO workers who for 20 years we've had uh, in Afghanistan acting on our behalf. And then when they needed us most, uh, the government stepped away from them. Uh, They weren't detailed in the evacuation plans as a priority. We have raised the hopes for the last 20 years of um, women and girls and minorities and indeed the whole country, supporting them in their progression towards democracy, only to effectively make them at risk of the Taliban for believing in us. So we think that the government really needs to have a a deep understanding of its long-term commitments to countries and what our investment in them means when the systems start to break down as dramatically and as rapidly as they did. Those lessons really should have been learned going forward so that it could have influenced our response to Ukraine. Royston, we've been looking at a lot of those overlaps as well. How are you seeing uh, the way in which the Foreign Office worked in Afghanistan? Are you seeing links between Uh, as Sarah put it, between uh, what happened in Afghanistan and Ukraine and other parts of the world, behaviour or rather the actions of the Foreign Office in in both parts having similar uh, implications? Absolutely. And it's not just um, what we're seeing now in Ukraine, although I think that we've, you know, got over the worst of the problems of bringing people from Ukraine. But we saw that previously and, and in our inquiries previously about trying to bring back British citizens stranded abroad during uh, covid and uh, already we challenged the Foreign Office on whether it was fit for purpose when these emergencies frequently once in a generation, once in a century emergency, if you think of COVID. But there we are, you know, five minutes later with Afghanistan and it all looks horribly the same. And then, you know, a few months later in Ukraine, it doesn't look like uh, lessons have been learned. Perhaps Perhaps they haven't had time yet to learn the lessons, but those lessons do need to be learned. Let's go on to Britain's role in, in these countries and particularly in Afghanistan, because a lot of people will quite reasonably be asking, why us? Why do we have to make such a commitment? What's 
what's the fundamental reason for Britain's involvement? Sarah, perhaps you'd like to kick us off. Why should we still be involved? You talked about women and girls, and it's certainly true that the uh, abuse of women in Afghanistan is the single biggest reversal in women's rights, I think, in a, in a generation. It's a, it's a horrific uh, incident. But let's also be accurate and say there are pretty vile countries around the world that treat women appallingly, uh, where we don't get involved. Why, why Afghanistan? Well, I think Afghanistan can be seen as a special case because for um, the last 20, 30 years, we have been making both uh, military and political interventions in that country. We have um, had a very hands-on approach there. And we've also made um, significant investments in development and humanitarian support. So for me, we, we sold a promise to that country. And therefore, I do think that we have a moral duty to hold good on that. But also what I would say is um, strategically, if we don't try and maintain at least some degree of cooperation, uh, I, I am very fearful that we will go back to a situation where it becomes a breeding ground for terror groups. We're already starting to see that um, the Taliban does not seem to be holding its word of trying to keep these groups at bay. And it does make me very nervous that uh, once again, we will be at risk if we don't help support that country as a whole. Well, it's not just us, is it? I mean, Royston, we've looked at this in the past and the uh, the incidents across the border with Pakistan demonstrate that the Taliban's already picking a fight with his neighbour there. The um, East Turkmenistan Islamic movement, ETIM as it's called, is already stirring up trouble uh, in China. We've seen Uzbek-related groups attacking Uzbekistan. You know, is this something that we're going to see spreading? Is this is this something that you're concerned about? I think we should all be concerned about it. I mean, as I understand it, there are you know, said to be something like 10,000 foreign fighters now in Afghanistan, including Al-Qaeda and Daesh and the uh, Pakistani Taliban, as they call them. But it's not just those, is it? There are, there are terror groups that are not affiliated with the Taliban, like IS, ISIS-K and um, you know other groups. So it's a breeding ground. And if there, if there was ever anything that the West was doing beyond you know humanitarian issues and educating girls and giving women more rights and freedoms, and you know if this wasn't an emergency now in the way that some people see it, it's very likely to become so again. And you can just imagine after twenty years, um, the whole cycle starts again. And um, we now don't have the ability to prevent it or to see it coming. And is that for you fundamentally the, the reason why the UK needs to be involved, the connection to Pakistan, the connection to Afghanistan? Let's not forget the 9-11 lesson, the, the fact that ungoverned terrorist spaces have a horrible way of biting us. You, know, you have to decide what it is you want to do from the beginning. And in Afghanistan, I would suggest, and other people disagree with me, there was massive mission creep. That wasn't what we went there in the first place to do. We went there in no small part to support an ally who was basically retaliating and trying to track down the people responsible for the atrocity that happened at the World Trade Center. But mission creep there was, and uh, and it turned into something other than it started. And once that happens, you know, you, you, you have the, as Sarah said, the moral, you know, obligation to people. Managing expectations is very difficult when you've set their expectations so high and then you leave. But as importantly is now, losing that ability to see what's going on and to prevent a future atrocity. Can I just come back then? So there's there's two major issues that we've touched on there. There's terrorism and there's and there's human rights, both of which come back to the simple fact that the Taliban is a 
well, not just hostile, but also incredibly chaotic administration that doesn't seem to be able to govern at all effectively. What what influence can the British government actually have over them? What can we fundamentally change? Um, well, we do have uh, cash, which normally has quite a strong negotiating position. The merger of um, the Foreign Office with development, we have argued in our report, Afghanistan is the perfect example to show how that diplomacy and development can work hand in hand to help um, stabilise a country and build relationships. What I would say is the government could be doing a lot more and unfortunately has pushed back on our recommendation to get the um, UN Security Council to bring forward a new resolution that monies can be released to the Taliban for development work on the condition that they observe international law. I I think it's a, a mistake not to be doing that because, to be quite honest, it is the people of Afghanistan who are suffering at the hands of their I don't really want to call them politicians, but of their governors at the moment. And and I think that to step away completely uh, leaves them totally at the mercy of the Taliban. It's not a group that we would choose to have in power, but we have to be realistic that they are. There are also some very, very good um, both local NGOs and international aid organisations that we could be giving more direct support to, to enable the um, country to not lose all of the ground that it has gained to give those people some hope. Because to be quite realistic, if you want a different organisation than the Taliban, uh, you need to be giving people hope that there is an alternative. And unless we do something quite proactive to give them that uh, ray of hope, I'm not sure how we get out of the situation we're in at the moment. Just touching on one of your other reports, you spoke, you published a report about Pakistan, didn't you? And the relationship between uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uh, and the United Kingdom. Maybe you'd like to touch on a few issues that that raised. Yeah, I mean, we have a very strong, we've always had a very strong relationship with Pakistan, uh, not least that we have 1.6 million Pakistani people uh, who live in this country. And that's always been a very productive relationship. What we've seen very recently is Pakistan has gone from the uh, sort of number one beneficiary of bilateral UK aid They were the biggest casualty, I think, of the cuts, and they are now the seventh sort of biggest beneficiary. And what that means is whilst Pakistan is a middle income country, there are huge uh, areas of poverty. Um, It's, uh, well, a third of their population are living in poverty and only 85% of adults have literacy. There's also a key link between the two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan, in that by December 2020, Pakistan was already hosting 3 million Afghanis and that went up by nearly half a million uh, by December 21. So by dropping the level of support we've got, Um, that's punishing some of the most vulnerable people. But also what it's doing is Pakistan is looking to invest in its country. And because the West isn't that keen on investing with them at the moment, where are they going to? China. And I would say strategically to keep Pakistan close to us creates a very useful ally in a time when the world is becoming more and more turbulent. That was Sarah Champion, the Labour MP for Rotherham, who chairs the International Development Committee. And Royston Smith, my colleague from the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Conservative MP for Southampton, Itchin. The Foreign Affairs Committee has now published its report on the UK government's role in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and it doesn't make for easy reading. You can find our views on the Select Committee website and the Twitter feeds. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. I'm Tom Tugendhat. I chair the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Commons, and you've been listening to Committee Corridor. 
Every two weeks while Parliament is sitting, we will be hearing from figures at the heart of our inquiries. Next time, I'll be speaking to Foreign Minister Joseph Wu of Taiwan, and he's going to be talking to us about the relationship with China and the way in which the situation in Taiwan is changing. Thank you for listening.